Today's podcast is brought to you by Isoway Sports, the sports range for athletes looking for supplements that are free from all artificial colours, flavours, sweeteners and added fructose. Intense physical training programs place significantly higher nutritional demands on sports people, and Isoway Sports are committed to providing pure nutritional ingredients that are truly complementary to a healthy, active lifestyle. You can visit isoasports.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is Belinda Reynolds, our illustrious senior presenter at Bioceuticals, who's a fantastic presenter of seminars. But she's also got street cred. She's a dietitian of many years' experience. And we're here today discussing calcium deglucurate. Welcome, Belinda. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, calcium deglucurate. Yes. Um, I remember many, many years ago, but it was something we never could have. Mm-hmm. This is quite exciting. What's happening? Yes, it's quite exciting that we now have it available. It's still not a TGA-approved supplement, so therefore it can't be in an OSTL product or in a tablet or a capsule. However, it can be um, sold as a product for compounding or as an extemporaneous product, which is fantastic because it can be used in in good high dosages, uh, which are then very beneficial for the patients it's prescribed for. But what is calcium deglucurate? What's this about? So uh, calcium deglucurate, one of its main actions is that it is able to inhibit the enzyme beta-glucuronidase. And beta-glucuronidase, when levels are high, it causes the deconjugation of toxins away from the uh, glucuronide conjugate it had been bound to during the detoxification process. And that cleaving of that bond that the beta-glucuronidase is responsible for uh, can result in reabsorption or recirculation of toxins which would normally be bound for excretion. So to explain that in another way, normally when uh, certain toxins or unwanted hormones such as estrogens uh, in the body are required to be excreted. Uh, They go through uh, phase two liver detoxification after phase one. And during that process, that toxin or, or hormone is bound to a conjugate. And in certain situations, such as the ones that we're talking about, uh, it's glucuronic acid or uh, a glucuronide that it's bound to. This is normally excreted as a compound. What can happen is that when you have these high levels of the beta-glucuronidase, it cleaves that bond and then that toxin again is rendered free to be recirculated. So by being able to suppress this enzyme, we can ensure healthy excretion of certain unwanted compounds from the body. But when we're talking about detoxification processes, we normally attribute those to the wellness and the processes of the liver. But this isn't necessarily the case with beta-glucuronidase, is it? No. So, of course, the the health of the liver is incredibly important, uh, first of all, because it's 
a major site for a lot of the conjugation reactions and a lot of the detoxification reactions. Uh, however, there's a number of other factors which must be working effectively to ensure sufficient and healthy excretion of unwanted things from the body. So when we're talking about the the beta-glucuronidase, there's a number of areas in the body that we find this enzyme. And when you have elevated levels of the enzyme in these areas of the body, this can contribute to problems. So for example, uh, beta-glucuronidase is produced by the brush border in the gut, but also by potentially harmful microorganisms. So if an individual has a dysbiosis, this can contribute to elevated levels of beta-glucuronidase. The result of that is that normally if a conjugated toxin is released from the liver via the bile, it enters the bowel for ultimate excretion. If you have dysbiosis and therefore that high level of beta-glucuronidase, it is in this area that that deconjugation or that cleaving of the toxin away from the glucuronic occurs. And that's when you get that estrogen or other potential carcinogen rendered free and available to potentially be reabsorbed back into the body. So when we do talk about using calcium deglucurate to ensure healthy excretion of estrogens and other toxins, uh, it's important to, to also take into account the health of the bowel. We need to ensure that there's not the presence of dysbiosis, which can cause that elevation in beta-glucuronidase. We also need to ensure good gut integrity, uh, which will minimise both the initial exposure of the body to toxins, but also will ensure a good uh, solid area for uh, that excretion process uh, to happen Mm. and and prevent reabsorption of toxins. What we also know is that beta-glucuronidase doesn't just exist in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, It's also found in areas such as the lungs. Uh, And we also know too that because when the toxin is conjugated during that glucuronidation process, uh, that toxin is rendered hydrophilic and water-soluble, whereas previously it would have been hydrophobic. And that helps that toxin to also be able to be excreted via the kidneys, so not just the liver and the bowel. And as a result, then, we also need to ensure that we have low levels of beta-glucuronidase in other areas of the body, such as the serum and, and the lungs and the kidneys, uh, to prevent that uh, cleaving of those conjugates uh, in other areas of the body. So when you're talking about the, the, the gut-based stuff, mm-hmm. we really are saying that calcium deglucurate is... Um, a, a great therapy, but it's used in context of the health of those tissues. So I would be thinking about things like pro- probiotics and, mm-hmm. and um, fibres and, and how do we use it in diet. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, definitely ensuring that healthy balance of microorganisms and good microbial diversity is very important. So a number of different probiotic species have been shown to assist in suppressing excessive beta-glucuronidase production. And then, of course, we know how important prebiotic fibres are for promoting the general health of 
the gut. You know, one of the best papers that I ever read on detoxification with probiotics, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll hail this lady, her name was Petra Hunter, mm. and, it, and it was written some years ago now. It was one of the best articles I ever read in FX Medicine magazine. And it talked about how even good bacteria processed certain toxins, enabling them uh, to be absorbed by the body. But importantly, they did it slower than the so-called bad bugs. So to me, the practical implication was it doesn't matter whether you've got good or bad, you've always got to keep your bowels moving and you've always got to keep those detoxification processes moving along with things like calcium deglucurate, fibre and everything like that. It's a really important thing to put it in context, isn't it? It is, yes, and that no one element is going to be enough to really protect someone from the chronic diseases associated with toxicity. And if we are speaking about estrogen dominant conditions where calcium deglucurate is often recommended because of its role in ensuring that healthy estrogen excretion and androgen excretion. We need to also consider the fact that high levels of inflammation in the body are responsible for elevated aromatase activity and therefore increased uh, production of estrogen. So again, that's where the, the probiotics and ensuring healthy gastrointestinal integrity uh, comes into it, but also addressing any s- systemic inflammation that may be present. Well, let's let's delve into then. What what sort of conditions can you use calcium deglucurate for if it's not just for gut, if it's not just for the liver sort of detoxification processes? Tell me what conditions you can use it for and what other things would you use it with? So I would be thinking, first of all, at uh, looking at certain conditions that are associated with estrogen dominance. So uh, uh, conditions such as endometriosis, uh, uterine fibroids, uh, PMS and other uh, menstrual disorders, they can certainly uh, potentially benefit from uh, the calcium deglucurate and insisting, assisting sorry, that healthy excretion of excess estrogen. Uh, if women have particularly issues with uh, breast swelling and pain uh, leading up to their Uh, menstrual cycle or during the menstrual cycle, sorry, Um, but then also to uh, individuals who are at a a high risk of breast cancer and other estrogen dominant cancers, it can be worthwhile considering as a preventative measure. And as you said, of course, there's numerous other factors that need to be taken into consideration as well. So glucuronidation isn't the only pathway involved in healthy excretion of hormones. So we also need to be ensuring that there's healthy glutathione to ensure good glutathione conjugation is occurring. And that can be done through supplementing with glutathione itself or with N-acetylcysteine, which helps to promote healthy glutathione synthesis. Again, we must ensure the health of the gut that's an absolute. Always paramount, mm. isn't it? <laughs> it is for not only ensuring the healthy toxin and estrogen excretion, but also for preventing the systemic inflammation, which will stem from a, a leaky gut because mm. you get that increased LPS passage. and Lipopolysaccharide, yeah. Yes, yes. And that dysregulation of the innate and therefore um, down the track, the adaptive immune uh, system. And I might just a little... A little Interjection there. Mm-hmm. It's a, even specialist gastroenterologists now are sort of um, embracing the fact that the um, absorption of lipopolysaccharide from a dysbiotic gut can um, worsen the um, the symptoms of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yes. Really interesting things yeah. that's happening here. And so. def- yeah, it worsens their prognosis. Um, it's. I mean, I remember myself when I first 
graduated as a, a, a dietitian and I was entering the integrative medicine sort of profession and I kept hearing this term leaky gut and I myself was very sceptical about the idea. Um, but obviously as research has continued into um, looking at systemic inflammation and its uh, contrib- contribution to chronic disease, they've started to realise that this LPS passage through a leaky gut barrier is a truly significant cause of, or a contributing factor at mm. least, to a huge range of illnesses. D- depends what you call it. Some medical entities will not entertain the the thought that a leaky gut is a is a an approved term, and they but they are quite happy to uh, accept the term bacterial fragmental translocation. Yes, or <laughs> intestinal hyperpermeability. So I think it's sometimes it's the the dialogue that we use and the dialogue that's accepted. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, so what about other tissues like lungs and gums? Yeah, so we actually find a bit of glucuronidase um, enzyme in a number of different tissues within the body um, and also in the serum. And if you do have high levels of that enzyme, uh, that can be contributing to, again, that uh, deconjugation of, of toxins from uh, its conjugate. And so, so sorry to get this clear in my head. Are you, are you telling me that if somebody's a high um, secretor, if you like, of beta-glucuronidase from lung tissue, that that may affect estrogenic type conditions? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to just be linked to estrogenic type conditions. There's other uh, potential carcinogens and other toxins that are uh, metabolized via glucuronidation. So if we take smokers, for example, they tend to have higher levels of beta-glucuronidase in their system. And we also need to think about, too, that um, some of the carcinogens or potential carcinogens that are normally metabolized by glucuronidation include the polyaromatic hydrocarbons. So uh, people that are overcooking their meat and having char-grilled meats and all those sorts of things, if they do have that uh, elevated level of beta-glucuronidase, they're not going to be able to efficiently excrete those toxins Mm. either. Interestingly, too, uh, the glucuronidation pathway is responsible for the metabolism and excretion of bilirubin. And uh, beta-glucuronidase is actually found in breast milk. And they've even suggested that it's elevated levels of beta-glucuronidase in the breast milk of mothers, which can contribute to jaundice in babies because that bilirubin isn't being excreted then efficiently from their little bodies. Is there any safety data then that we might have on maybe in, in breastfeeding, indeed. There's no safety data that I've seen. It's not to say that it doesn't exist, but I haven't personally seen it. But it would definitely uh, suggest that leading up to pregnancy, it is very important mm. that women are ensuring they have those healthy detoxification pathways. And also, if we want to look at something that we do know to be safe during pregnancy and breastfeeding, uh, they can ensure that they're consuming uh a high fiber diet, which promotes again that microbial diversity and the growth of uh, good bacteria in the gut. They can look at taking a probiotic if they have had a recent uh, prescription of antibiotics that would have significantly compromised the health of their microbiota. There's certain foods that are rich in the calcium deglucurate as well um, that women can consume in order to maximise their, or sorry, (laughs) minimise their (laughs) beta-glucuronidase 
levels and oranges are particularly high in uh, calcium deglucurate. So too are apples and broccoli and spinach. I think broccoli would be the magic <laughs> thing there, <laughs> and, wouldn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of beneficial <laughs> compounds in, in broccoli. So pregnant sure. women, if you're not going to take a supplement because, you know, we, we don't have that safety data yet and I call for any researcher to really look into that, that's an important area. Mm. But uh, we can certainly look at uh, nice, healthy doses of, of broccoli providing a wide range of beneficial um, compounds, can't we? Absolutely, yes. But again, there's that bacteria. It, it, there's so many conditions that you just, if you don't look at the healthy microbiota, you're not really getting all of that linchpin, are you? No, we all, and we, we do always need to go back to that philosophy that all diseases begin in the gut. And so always address the health of the gut, the health of the microbiota, ensure the consumption of a healthy diet and minimising an individual's exposure to toxins. And then on top of that, look at providing the supplements that may potentially assist with ensuring the health of certain detoxification pathways. You mentioned inflammation. And I think, again, there's a key thing. So when we're looking at um, the way that beta-glucuronidase might be upregulated in inflammatory processes. Mm -hmm. We might be looking at treating with calcium deglucrate, but also including that in an anti-inflammatory program. Curcumin, fish oils, exercise, correct breathing. Tell me more about this. So definitely um, inflammation is absolutely associated with higher levels of um, aromatase activity and that therefore increased estrogen production. So not only do we want to be providing the calcium deglucurate, which can support healthy excretion of estrogen, we also want to look to what we can do to suppress excessive production of it. Um, So then you're working sort of from both ends to help with minimising um, any potential excess that's present. And as you mentioned, turmeric is very effective at helping to reduce Uh, systemic inflammation, fish oil at high doses, particularly EPA, are very, very effective. Uh, Zinc depletion has even been associated with uh, aromatase excess. So ensuring uh, sufficient zinc is very important as well. And as you mentioned, exercise is incredibly important. Uh, they say that sitting is the new smoking yeah. uh, because of the the risk. Damn it, and it I gave can... up smoking in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, yeah, the health problems associated with a, a truly sedentary lifestyle are, are huge mm. and very significant. So appreciable dosages, though. I, I think this has been a real key area that we've missed out on in previous attempts in Australia um, because calcium deglucrate, the other name for it is calcium saccharate, mm-hmm. and it was added as an excipient in previous products in Australia. But that doesn't give us the therapeutic range, right? No. So currently, because most of the data is in vitro and animal, it is quite difficult to extrapolate exact effective human dosages. Generally, the recommendation is 1,000 to 3,000 milligrams per day. Uh, However, if you do look at the animal studies, they suggest higher dosages may be warranted. They use 100 to 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, uh, which really is, is quite huge. So we are still really waiting for more data to uh, identify specific 
dosages, but it does appear that that 1,000 to 3,000 milligrams per day can provide some benefit. But then, of course, again, I just want to emphasise the importance of not relying on it alone. We must ensure uh, the health of the other pathways occurring in the liver and we must ensure the health of the gut. We must address that dysbiosis um, and also look to minimise any inflammation in the body. Okay, so talking about the pathways of the liver, mm-hmm. what other things can you use calcium deglucrate with and, and how would you sway that depending on the type of condition that you might have? Like, for instance, uh, uh, let's say a liver detox for multiple chemical sensitivity versus uh, 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 enhancing that pathway because of hormonal issues like polycystic ovarian disease. What other things would you use with it? So if we're looking to uh, minimise exposure to certain toxins uh, in or because of multiple chemical sensitivities, as you mentioned, we'd definitely be looking to ensure that phase two is keeping up with phase one. Um, What can happen uh, in the liver is that phase one is very easily upregulated by the presence of certain toxins in the body. And the metabolites that come out of phase one can often be more reactive than those that entered. And if phase two is not keeping up with phase one, those intermediate metabolites can hang around and cause some damage. And what we therefore need to do is ensure that that nutrient-dependent phase two is uh, being provided with the, the nutrients that it needs. So that's where promoting healthy glutathione comes in, um, providing the sulfur-containing amino acids to support sulfation uh, because sulfation is a very important pathway. Generally, if other phase two pathways are falling down a little, sulfation tends to be able to uh, assist with picking up the slack. Uh, so, And then also, again, the amino acids are very important for other conjugation reactions. So too are the B vitamins uh, for healthy methylation. So um, we need to ensure good a good nutritional status mm. and we need to uh, also be ensuring uh, that we're encouraging the consumption of all of those cruciferous vegetables that provide uh, those truly important compounds necessary for healthy um, phase two reaction. You know, a picture is building in my mind. It's actually quite clear. I'm, I'm looking at my mind to some blanched broccoli or broccolini um, with maybe some asparagus spears, uh, an orange juice to enhance <laughs> phase one, and maybe some parmesan cheese and walnuts over the top of it. You know? yeah. And I think if people can start to really enjoy this beautiful food, mm-hmm. and I, I I emphasise, like you did, the plant kingdom is the key to so many of these phytochemicals that we can get. And if we can look at that as the base and then add this clinical nutrition component to as the tie-off, does that make sense? It does, yes. And, I mean, we just have to look at some of the, the data from the Australian Health Survey they did a few years ago and they found that such a small percentage of Australians are consuming the recommended servings of, of vegetables. Mm. Uh, I think it was about it was around between six and eight percent were achieving that recommended uh, daily dose of. How many of percent? It was between six and eight percent. I can't remember exactly it's off the top still, of my head, but it's still abhorrently low, isn't it? Yes, more than ninety percent of people are not consuming enough and vegetables. I don't get it. Yeah. When you can make these things taste beautiful, they don't have to be broccoli. It can be broccoli with. Yes. Yes. That's what I think people are missing the key. Mm. Where I think people are missing the key. Yeah. And I so th- I got you off track. 
Tell me more. So, yeah, so basically these, the cruciferous vegetables particularly are so important for supporting um, that detoxification. And the beauty is they also provide the fibre that is so important for feeding the good bacteria and therefore promoting the health of, of the gut. So they're, they're like an all-in-one and you just have to look at some of the research on uh, cancer prevention. Simply consuming more servings of broccoli or more servings of vegetable per week can significantly bring down an individual's risk of certain cancers. So the smallest changes to the diet can really provide some significant benefits. So if people just commit to increasing the vegetables in their diet, they can really do some profound uh, benefits for their health. But if we move back to talking about those multiple chemical uh, sensitivities, uh, so what we're trying to do is we're supporting that phase two. So the glutathione, the N-acetylcysteine, the B vitamins, the amino acids, the sulfur-containing compounds, all of those things are essential for promoting uh, healthy phase two reactions. Again, the fibre, the probiotics, um, nutrients that support gut integrity are all very important for ensuring healthy excretion. And uh, relaxation processes can be very important as well and reducing stress because uh, if someone has chronic stress in their life, this can lead to uh, a compromised adrenal function. And when we have compromised adrenal function, we end up with uh, imbalances in cortisol and the body's ability to keep the immune system in check. And as a result, we can get increased intolerances to certain things in the environment. So there's a number of different things that we need to to do in order to provide a truly effective uh treatment or management program for someone who is experiencing those chemical sensitivities or toxicities. So we're now able to get calcium diglycrate on the Australian market. Yes. How do you actually practically use this stuff? How do you mix it? What does it taste like? What do you use it with to make it more palatable? Well, the great thing is is that uh, there's not huge doses that are needed. So being in a powder form, you tend to get about 900 milligrams per Gram, so 900 milligrams of actual calcium deglucrate per gram That's of pretty powder. Yeah, it is yeah. so, and then if you think about it, one gram being a dose, uh, you're only needing just over one gram of powder, and this can very easily be mixed into foods or added to juices or smoothies or just taken on its own. Uh, so really, the the compliance can be. Very, very good. So it doesn't taste disgusting? or it's, No, it's not terrible. And uh, particularly because it's such a small amount needed, it's very easily disguised. So I, I think one of the things is people tend to say powder equals into a watery compound. But what I'm learning from people like Lee Zalchler, and indeed with my experience with other fibre-type compounds, is um, that you, you, can, you can mix it into more... I'm going to say the word stodgy foods, but that's not what I mean. But things like pumpkin, things like mashed potato. So therefore you can uh, broaden its breadth of treatment to those people that might not uh, normally drink juices. Or... Yes. I know a lot of people, when they hear the idea of taking a powder, it can turn them off a little bit. They'd prefer to take it in a tablet or a capsule. Um, but the beauty with these powders, when you only have to take such a small amount, is that, like you said, it can be mashed in or mixed into foods and therefore the individual doesn't even realise they're taking it. Uh, one of my favourite ways to do it is mashing it into avocado and uh. putting it on, on crackers or um 
what, whatever yeah. you might have your, your mashed avocado with and you you don't even know it's there. Avocado, the better butter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then again, you're having the additional benefit of consuming the fibre at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah. I think if we can... If we can Look at the, the, the supplements in the context of, of good, healthy dietary inclusions mm-hmm. um, and sort of use it with there. It just makes it so much more normal to take rather than a this thing out there, the supplement, you know. Yep. It's just supplementing and adding that extra benefit to your food mm. really. And um, I think compliance is often better too if someone knows that they can take it easily and it's not an unpleasant experience for them. Any Contraindications, any cautions, anything that you'd be worried about or concerned about? So anything that significantly enhances the detoxification or removal of certain compounds uh, should be taken with caution with certain um, pharmaceutical medications. So particularly the, the contraceptive pill is a hormonal drug. So there just needs to be that awareness that it could potentially be promoting the excretion of these drugs and therefore you would uh, potentially exert caution. It seems that calcium deglucrate, its activity in the body uh, lasts for about five hours. So uh, there is the possibility that you could just separate the doses, one in, take one in the morning and the other in the evening. Yep. Um, but yes, generally just monitor that yeah, or, th- or be cautious. Yeah, so I think for safety's sake, if you're using it in a, a lady who's taking, uh, forgive me, a, a lady of childbearing age, then it would be prudent to investigate some other form of contraception during that treatment phase. Yes, so there's no evidence to significant to demonstrate that it will no. definitely interfere with the contraceptive pill. However, it is one of those areas where we're just not sure mm. and you are best to err on the side of caution. Absolutely. Yes. Unless you're planning for a family. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about some other hints and tips that you might be able to give our listeners? So uh, aside from uh, the calcium deglucurate's ability to assist with the detoxification and removal of uh, the compounds metabolised via glucuronidation, so those carcinogens and the oestrogens, uh, beta-glucuronidase does appear to have other um, functions in tumour cells. So calcium deglucurate's ability to suppress that beta-glucuronidase can be very beneficial because you do have beta-glucuronidase acting within tumour cells. In addition to that, the calcium deglucurate has been shown uh, to be anti-inflammatory and inflammation is one of the key drivers of tumour growth. These studies are in their early stages. They're still in vitro animal studies. However, it is something that is worth considering, uh, say, if someone does know that they're at a high risk, particularly if it's an estrogen-dependent cancer, but other cancers as well. Um, And I think oral cancer and skin cancer, they've shown particular benefit. So that's where it can be a consideration. So I think um, as a practical thing with regards to somebody uh, with their cancer therapy, I would reserve it for after the chemotherapy and radiotherapy cycle so that you can then enhance the apoptotic, normal apoptosis of any residual tumour cells that might be there. And and, and I was talking with Lee Zalter about this and we were talking about how some therapies can actually enable the survival of the more stubborn cells. So this might be something to help turn on or return on those apoptotic mechanisms. 
Potentially, and there, there are a number of different beneficial compounds in, in plants that have been found to have those pro-apoptotic benefits. So EGCG from green tea, resveratrol, uh, turmeric or curcumin from turmeric. So, uh, yeah, there's certainly a number of beneficial compounds that naturally exist in food or that you can take as a concentrated supplement, which can help with normalising those, those cell death processes, which seem to be not functioning efficiently in tumour development. But definitely, as you said, with, with chemotherapy and radiation, we need to be very cautious that we're not uh, doing anything which could potentially interfere with that therapy and definitely reserve it for, for afterwards uh, for just promoting the health of that individual and assisting in their recovery. Belinda Reynolds, I love the way that you take stuff and you bring it into practical clinical application uh, in a safe way. You know, you know you're really a master at that and I really applaud you for that. So thank you for taking us through the clinical and practical applications of calcium deglucrate and where and where you should not use it to make it uh, you know, the safest possible uh, adjunct to any sort of therapy that we have for our patients. It's my absolute pleasure and thank you again for having me. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.